we want to continue in the series that we've been teaching on biblical prosperity. And uh, we want to use some of the text scriptures that we've been using each time. Psalm 35 and then Deuteronomy chapter 8. Psalm 35 verse 27 it says, Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Folks, notice the connection between prosperity and righteousness. Let them shout for joy, then be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Everything that Jesus did for us through his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection was to bring mankind back to a place of righteousness, right standing with God. And a part of that, or we should say included in that, is physical healing for our bodies and prosperity, material prosperity and provision for our lives. It's the way God started things off before sin entered the world, before Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. We know that the earth was a paradise. It was a place of perfection. There was no sickness or disease present on the earth to attack mankind. There was no lack and there was nothing that could cause any lack. And that's the way God made it because that's the way God is. Now things have certainly changed because of the introduction of sin and death, spiritual death into the world. But folks, everything pertaining to spiritual death, everything pertaining to anything that's other than the way God made this earth is of the devil and not of him. God wants you to know, and he's given us his word to reveal it to us. He wants us to know that he delights in our prosperity. God doesn't have a problem with you having too much. God just wants to make sure that the too much doesn't have you. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Beginning in verse 1. This is Moses' farewell address to the children of Israel. He's not going to be able to go with them into the promised land. Joshua will be the leader that takes his place. But Moses, before his, his final act, before he goes off the scene, is him admonishing the people, reminding the people of the things that God has said, reminding them of his plan and purpose for them in providing the promised land. So he starts in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. He says, All the commandments which I command thee this day shalt thou observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knowest not. Neither did, did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. 
thou shalt also consider in thy heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. Folks, God wants you and me to live in a good land. He wants us to live in a place of abundance. He wants the world to be able to see that he's on our side by the way we live our lives. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of waters, of fountains and depths that spring up of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou mayest eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. Now all this is God's definition of a good land. This is what a good land is supposed to look like. This is what a good land is. And notice there's plenty. His plan is for us to eat bread without scarceness, to have our fill of anything and everything that we need, to recognize that the provision of this good land is the hand of God and the blessing of God upon us. Verse 10, when thou hast eaten in our full then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. This is the only warning. There's a verse of scripture in Proverbs that says the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. And some people will question, well, why should we then expect or want or desire prosperity? The Bible clearly says the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But folks, the answer is don't be a fool. <laughs> Not to throw away God's promise of provision and abundance. And this might be news to some people, but you decide whether you're a fool or not. This is the only warning that he gives. Beware that you forget not the Lord thy God. Verse 12, lest when thou hast eaten and art full, God says that several times, that must be okay with him, that must be his plan. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, here's the warning, beware that your heart be not lifted up, and forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. Here's the warning again. Beware that thou not say in thy heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Now, folks, let me, let me stop there just for a moment and make a couple of comments. This must be the pattern that the devil uses against everybody. And notice the conditions that he says, be careful not to forget God. 
He doesn't say it in a time of famine. He says in a time of blessing, in a time of prosperity, in a time of abundance. Don't forget that it was God that did this. See, it's a given that he will do this. It's a decree by God himself that keeping the commandments will produce this abundance, this overwhelming abundance and provision. The question is not whether or not God will do it. The issue that he raises is that after I do it, don't start thinking it was you. That's the only criteria he has. That's the only warning he gave. So he says, don't start thinking that it was your hand or your power or your might that has gotten me this wealth. Now, folks, again, let me ask you this. How much is wealth? What is wealth? When the Bible talks about God's provisions, he uses terms that are specific enough for us to understand what they mean, but that are subjective also. See, what you may think is rich is something different than I might think is rich. I've told the story many times of when I was a kid growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, nobody had swimming pools. And if somebody did have an in-ground swimming pool, well, that was the sign right there that they had to be rich. Well, I don't think that anymore. I don't judge rich by an indoor swimming pool. I mean, by an in-ground swimming pool. The Bible uses subjective terms. How much is wealth? I think one reason that God does it this way is because man has such a tendency to try to monetize these terms. But how do you do that? Is rich a million dollars? Well, let's say to some that rich would be a million dollars in the bank. So 900,000 and 900, less than a million couldn't be rich. If you got $900,000 in the bank, that's not rich. God doesn't talk in terms of, of dollars and cents. But it does say very specifically, the Bible tells us clearly in the New Testament that Jesus died and through his death, the payment for poverty that came as a result of man's sin, Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Jesus paid the price for that so that you not, need not suffer lack or poverty, but that you should walk in abundance because that's why Jesus was made poor for our sakes. In other words, became the sacrifice or the substitute for poverty on the cross so that we through his poverty might be made rich. Well, folks, Jesus wasn't poor on the earth. The Bible says that he had a treasurer. Judas was the treasurer. And he was stealing money out of the bag. Now, folks, if there's $10 in the bag... It's pretty evident if somebody takes some out. But the Bible also tells us that not only was Jesus responsible for the 12, the apostles that traveled with him and, and lived with him, but there was a number of other people 
that followed him as well. Most Bible scholars agree that there was anywhere from 80 to 100 people that would follow Jesus around at any given time. Well, when Jesus sent the 70 out, he didn't have to go look for people, did he? They were there. And Jesus was responsible for the care of all these people. They've left homes. They've left jobs. They've left lands and houses and families and so forth. When Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, he went to the disciples. They let him know what the problem was. These people haven't eaten for three days. Their solution was send them home so they can go somewhere and find something to eat. And Jesus turned it around on them and said, you give them something to eat. And the first question that the disciples asked is, where would we buy enough bread for all these people? Not where would we get the money to buy the bread. Where would we buy the bread? Costco is too far away. Jesus was not some poor homeless vagrant. If he had been, then the Roman soldiers wouldn't have gambled for his clothes. So again, here's the warning in verse 17. Don't say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But here's what it takes to remember. Here's what's important to remember to keep yourself from being a fool whose prosperity destroys them. And that's exactly what he's telling them. He's saying it would be foolish for you to think that you did this. He's warning them against it. So how do you keep from being a fool? How do you keep from allowing prosperity to destroy you. Remember this. No matter what, remember this. Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. Now I want you to look with me to the last part of the verse. Prosperity is to establish the covenant. It's God's work in our lives to establish the covenant. What covenant is, is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as it is for thy fathers, which he swear unto thy fathers. We want to look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a little bit this morning, but notice the last phrase of the verse, verse 18 as it is this day. In other words, God is saying to these people through Moses, Moses is instructing at the instruction of God, at the leading of God. He's instructing the people. The promise is just as good that day as it was the day that he gave it to Abraham. No difference in the promise he made to you and the promise he made to Abraham. Well, now the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 that if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's Galatians 3.29. If you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is part of the promise. So he says, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Power to get wealth. Power to get wealth. 
In other words, he's saying there's a spiritual force, a spiritual power that belongs to the children of God, that belongs to those that are Christ, those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. There's a spiritual force that enables us and brings about wealth into our lives. It's interesting to me that one of the devil's main roads of attack, methods of attack in this, is to try to make people think that this just belongs to the Jews. That doesn't belong to the church. That belongs to the Jews. Well, the Bible says, and we could take the time to go over to Galatians 3 and read the whole chapter, but in the, uh, for the sake of time, the Bible says that not all physical Jews are Jews. In other words, not everybody that's a natural descendant of Abraham is an heir of the promise that God made to him. But that the ones that are real Jews, spiritual Jews, the ones that God considers to be his family, his chosen people, are those that have accepted Jesus as their Savior and come into his family. The devil doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to believe that, and for goodness sakes, he doesn't want you to start saying it. Now, turn back with me to, to uh, Genesis chapter 12. I have an impossible task this morning, and that is to cover the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob relative to God's plan of provision and prosperity. And the only way I can do that is to hit some of the high spots and leave some gaps in the timeline. But I'll try to give you as much of a synopsis of the things that we're skipping over as we can so that it still makes sense. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee from out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And it tells us where he went, tells us that he came down to the land of Canaan, but that he kept going south. Let's pick up the, uh, the story in verse 10. After he's traveled to the Canaan land, God has identified that that's the place that he will give to Abraham and his seed forever. It says, and there was a famine in the land, in the land of Canaan, in other words. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Then it tells us about some of the things that Abraham did when he left and went down into Egypt. He wound up making a, a covenant with the king of Egypt. Chapter 13 says, And Abram went up out of Egypt when the famine was over in Canaan, in other words. Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. Now, how much is very rich? Very rich. 
Again, God doesn't put a monetary value on it. But notice that the blessing of God, Proverbs 10.22 says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. The blessing of God that was on Abraham made him very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Now, the Bible doesn't identify how long it was, but it doesn't imply that it was a real long period of time. Abraham's prosperity was found in Egypt. Turn with me to chapter 26, Genesis chapter 26. The time that we're skipping over encompasses a lot of things, most notably perhaps when Lot and his family was taken captive by the five enemy kings that came out against the cities of Lot of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 14 that Abraham gathered out of those that were born in his house 318 trained servants and he made a band of soldiers out of them to go back and retake and to deliver Lot from these enemy kings. The Bible says as he did that, Melchizedek came to Abram and Abram paid tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, you take all the stuff. You take all the wealth, the riches, the spoils that you got from delivering your nephew Lot and give me the people. But Abraham shows his attitude and, and his love for God by saying that he wouldn't take anything of the spoils except what his men have eaten to go to deliver the people. He said, I don't want anything from you even to a shoestring because I don't want you to be able to say that you made me rich. So you see two things. You see Abraham's attitude toward the source of his wealth. He's not saying the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. He hasn't forgotten the Lord as Moses warned the people many years later. He says and he shows that the money is not nearly as important to him as for people around him to know that God is the one that did this great work. And he honors God by paying tithes to Melchizedek. You can't find anywhere where it's demanded of, of the Abram. You can't find anything where God says there's this special way that I want you to be aware of. It's called tithing. Abram seems to do it on his own. And as a result, it's a great sign of honor unto God. So much so that God includes it. It incorporates it into the law of Moses when that comes around some 700 years later, 685 years later. But tithing did not begin as a part of the law because Abraham had no law to keep. We skipped over the part where Abraham and Sarah miraculously have a child named Isaac. And Isaac is growing up now. And in Genesis chapter 26, we'll pick up the story 
Beginning in verse 1, it says, And there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries. And in thy seed shall, be, shall, shall the nations of the earth be blessed. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my statutes, my commandments, and my laws. So there's another famine. This time, it's different than it was with Abraham. Abraham went down into Egypt, and he became rich in Egypt and brought many of the spoils of the riches of Egypt out with him when he returned to the land of Canaan. But now God says, same situation, same circumstance, and I don't have any doubt that Abraham somewhere along the way had told Isaac about how these things had, trans had transpired. I'm sure that somewhere along the way, Abraham told Isaac the story of going down into Egypt because of the famine that was in Canaan. Told about the circumstances surrounding him making a covenant with the king of Egypt. That would be important because Isaac would be included in that covenant promise that he made with Egypt. That Abraham made with the king of Egypt. So he had to have heard about these things in some way or another. But here God's dealing with him in a different way. He says, don't try to escape the famine in Egypt like Abram did. Nothing wrong with what Abram did or how he did it. But his instruction to Isaac is, don't follow that same pattern. I've got a different road for you. Now, folks, one of the greatest desires of my heart is for my kids to know God like I know God or better. I want my kids to know the Word of God like I know the Word of God or greater. I want them to know God for themselves. Don't you want that for your kids too? Everything else is secondary to that as far as I'm concerned. Everything else. That's the most important thing that I could give my kids. To whatever degree I can impart that to them or encourage them in that. Nothing else takes a higher priority than that. That's a lot of what God said about Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. When the Lord came down with the two angels to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord, just before he, they leave to go to Sodom to identify what's going on there, talking about the two angels, the Lord says something about Abraham. He says, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that he shall become a great nation. For he shall teach his children after him to know the ways of the Lord. That's a lot of the same attitude that Abram had, or maybe in greater measure than what you and I have. And that was one of the things, and really it's the only thing that you could even in any way claim to be the reason why God picked Abraham instead of somebody else. Abraham wasn't less of an idol worshiper than anybody else in his day. He didn't know who God was. 
Nobody knew who God was. And so God just out of the blue picks one guy. And the only thing that can even be hinted at as the reason why God might have picked him instead of somebody else is what God says about his attitude toward his kids. That doesn't mean, and I'm not trying to say that he's the only person on the earth that would have wanted that. I don't know that to be true. I wouldn't expect that to be true. But it's the only thing that God says about him that might possibly set him apart from somebody else. So where Abraham left the famine to go down to Egypt and God made him rich in Egypt, God tells Isaac to stay put in the land of Canaan where the famine is. Skip down with me to verse 12, Genesis 26, verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in that land, talking about the land of famine. Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became great, very great. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and great store of servants, and the Philistines envied him. So in Abraham's case, during the time of famine, God sent him down to Egypt, or he went down into Egypt. It certainly must not have been against God's plan for his life because he returns with great wealth. He was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. But God had a different way of dealing with Isaac. He left Isaac in the land of famine and miraculously provided for him as if there was no famine at all. In other words, Isaac lived above the famine because he was doing what God told him to do. Now, folks, since this happened in two different ways for Abraham and Isaac, we have to conclude that the power to get wealth is not just some physical ability to get money. It's a spiritual force. It's a spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality will work no matter where you are, whether you're in a time or a place of abundance or if you're in a time of scarceness. That spiritual force, that power to get wealth, is not hindered in any way whatsoever by a famine. It's not hindered or lessened, diminished in any way by any circumstance that exists because it's the command of God. Well, Pastor Mike, that sounds great. How do we get that to work? We just read in Psalm 35, verse 27, a part of it is saying continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. In other words, speaking prosperity, whether you're down in Egypt where things are comfortable or in the land of Canaan where there's a famine, you and I should never speak anything other than God's pleasure in our prosperity. Now let's fast forward to Jacob. You remember the story about Isaac and Rebekah having twins. One of the twins was named Esau. He was a rough guy, hunter, outdoors guy, a real man's man. He was the firstborn. Jacob come, came right after him. And the Bible makes a big deal about Jacob's hand holding on to Esau's heel. But as the firstborn, Esau would have been the one that was heir to all of the, the, the blessings of Abraham, the double portion or the double measure. 
of Abraham himself. Well, the Bible tells us that Jacob was a little bit of a mama's boy, I guess. Where Esau was doing all the hunting and fishing and all the outdoor stuff, Esau stayed home and learned how to cook. But Esau was Rebekah's favorite. And so when the time came for the blessing to take place, the first thing that happened was Esau came in from hunting and he makes a big deal about being at the point of death. He may have been a little bit of a whiner too. Jacob's got soup on the stove. And it smells so good that Esau makes a big deal out of if, if Jacob doesn't give him part of the soup or a bowl of the soup, he's just going to die straight away. And so Jacob says, well, I'll sell it to you. Esau says, what do you want? And, he, and Jacob said, I want your birthright. I want the blessing of the firstborn. Well, again, Esau made a big deal out of it. What do I care about that if I'm dead? <laughs> Give me some soup. And so they did. And apparently Esau didn't have any intention of keeping that promise or that promise coming to anything. Because when the time came, Esau, I'm sorry, Jacob, at the instruction of his mother, put on hairy skins that might make his father Isaac think that he was Esau instead of Jacob. This Esau guy must have been a woolly mammoth. <laughs> and Isaac's eyesight has, had gone by then. And he identifies. He tells Esau to go prepare a meal and bring it to him. And then Isaac would place the blessing upon Esau. Well, Rebekah hears about this, the boy's mother. She hears about this and she puts Jacob on to making something to get there before, Isaac, before Esau does. And she puts these skins on him. And Isaac felt the skins and said, well, you're hairy like Esau, but your voice is Jacob's. <laughs> Nevertheless, he pronounced the firstborn blessing upon Jacob. Now, the name Jacob means supplanter. That kind of means to be a deceiver. Now, it was good that Jacob recognized the importance of the firstborn inheritance. But he certainly didn't let God work it out in any way. He tried to take care of things himself, and he did. After he received the blessing of the firstborn, then Esau came in and said, Dad, I've got the stuff you sent me to make. And Isaac almost had a heart attack on the spot. He said, who was the other guy that came in before you? Well, there's only one other guy that it could have been. So Esau tries, declares and promises to kill Jacob. So Jacob starts running. Now, folks, I want you to realize, when he began to run, he's leaving behind all the blessing of Abraham. So Jacob's way to get the firstborn inheritance <clears throat> is the very thing that keeps him from receiving the firstborn inheritance. 
because he has to leave the country for fear of Esau killing him. Now in Genesis chapter 28, it tells about Jacob running. And he lighted upon, verse 11, Genesis 28, verse 11, and he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up upon the earth, and the top of it reached into heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Now, I don't think that angels can only move by ladders, but that was what the dream showed him. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thy liest to thee will I give it into thy seed. Notice God gets personal with all three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, I will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again unto this land for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awakened out of his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up, up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, if God will be with me. Please notice this vow that he makes. Jacob vowed a vow and said, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go. And will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. So that I come again to my father's house in peace. He's planning to come back. Then shall the Lord be my God. But Jacob is putting God to the test here too. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. What does Jacob know about tithes? I wonder if Abraham told him about the encounter with Melchizedek. We have to accept that this became part of the family history passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Now, I know a lot of people like to take the idea or take the position that tithing is not that big a deal under the New Testament, the New Covenant. But folks, all of these things have to do with relationship. Tithing is about a relationship with God. It's not about dollars and cents. And if you think about it, why would we not? Now, let me say it a different way. Why would we risk being out of God's favor over a dime? Because that's all God asks. He asks a dime of your dollar. He says, give me 10 cents. You keep 90 cents. And then he does more with the 10 than you can do with the 90. 
It's about relationship. Tithing is the way that we don't forget God. Tithing is the way, Paul said, writing to the Hebrews, he said it's a witness to the fact that Jesus is alive. Well, I wouldn't want to do anything that would take away from the witness that Jesus is alive, the witness in my life that Jesus is alive. Would you? I don't think anybody would if we put it in these terms. But a part of Jacob's vow is that he will tithe if God passes the test. Interesting that part of the, the thing that God said about the tithe in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, is to put him to the test. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse and prove me now. In other words, put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven to you, and pour you out a blessing that there's not room enough to receive. Let's keep reading about Jacob. Skip down with me now to chapter 30, beginning in verse 25. I'm going to have to fill in the blanks on some of this. Jacob runs to Laban's house in the country that Abraham first came from. This is the place where Abraham sent his servant to find a, a wife for Isaac. And so Jacob goes at the instruction of Rebekah to the country of Laban. And he goes to his house. And Laban has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Apparently Rachel was better looking than Leah was. And so Jacob agrees to work seven years for the hand of Rachel, his daughter. Well, he works those seven years, and the time comes for him to have Rachel as his wife. But Laban switches Leah out for, Jacob, for uh, Rachel. Jacob has sex with Rachel with uh, Jacob has sex with Leah and in the morning realizes that it wasn't Rachel which is a real good argument to always keep the lights on when you're having sex <laughs> just a thought so Jacob is ripped next morning he wants Laban's head on a stick and so Laban goes through this thing, and he says, well, it's not right. It's not appropriate according to the customs of this land for the younger daughter to be given before the older daughter. But he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. Work for me for another seven years, and I'll give you Rachel too. Well, Abraham, um, Jacob doesn't have to wait the seven years before Rachel becomes his wife. He winds up with a wife, both wives, two wives, in a matter of two days. Now, Jacob winds up working for Laban for 20 years. And during those 20 years, the Bible says, Jacob says it himself when he's talking to his wives when they're getting ready to leave, Laban. He says that Laban 
has changed his wages 10 times over those 20 years. Now, folks, he wouldn't have mentioned that if, if Laban was increasing his salary. So when he talks about Laban changing his salary 10 times in those 20 years, he's using it as a, sim, a symbol or a sign of the dishonest way that Laban has dealt with him. So over 10 years, according to Laban, Jacob has had less and less rather than more and more. Now, folks, there's some things to consider. We can't go into it in great detail. But there's some things to consider. Laban did to Jacob almost exactly what Jacob did to Esau. Jacob did not plant some good seed in the way that he did this. And I have no doubt that if Jacob's relationship with God had been stronger, he could have just let God work things out and gotten the firstborn blessing anyway. Something similar happened to this in Joseph's lifetime. When after Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt and brought down his family to live with him there, Jacob is just about to, to die to go off the scene. And he prays for both of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And just as the situation was with Jacob and Esau, the son that was supposed to get the firstborn blessing, Jacob laid hands on him and gave him the secondborn blessing. But the younger, he gave the firstborn blessing. Joseph tries to correct that. He says, you've got your hands on the wrong kid. And Jacob says, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. And that's the way that it was. And I have no doubt that it could have been that way for Jacob too. But he tried to make things happen on his own. Folks, if God has said something to you, believe in what he said, but let him do it. It always works better that way. Now, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 30, this tells us the story of Jacob leaving Laban. Verse 25, And it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said unto Laban, Send me away that I may go into my own place, into my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served thee, and let me go. For thou knowest my service which I have done thee. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in your eyes, tear it. Don't leave. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Now, folks, if that's what God did in the Old Testament, why wouldn't he do it in the New Testament? He doesn't change. What I want you to see from this is watch the difference in, jo in Jacob's attitude after having served Laban for 20 years. Laban said in verse 28, Appoint me thy wages and I will give it. And he said unto thee, Thou knowest how I have served thee and how thy cattle was with me. For it was little when thou hadst before I came and now it's increased to a multitude. And the Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now when shall I provide for my own house? And he said, what shall I give thee? Here's Laban that asked the question again. He said, what do you want me to give you? 
And Jacob said, thou shalt not give me anything. Notice he's come back to the place where Abraham was. Abraham's reasons may, be a, may have been a little bit different, but it's the same action that takes place. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I don't want your stuff. I don't want you to be able to say that you made me rich. His relationship with God was more important to him than the money. Here Jacob is growing into that. He said, I don't want you to give me anything. If thou wilt do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep thy flock. I will pass through all thy flock today, removing from thence all the speckled and spotted cattle and all the brown cattle among the sheep and the spotted and speckled among the goats and of such shall be my hire. In other words, he says, I'll take the worst part of the flock. Notice verse 33, so shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come. That sure wasn't his attitude when he let his mom talk him into deceiving Isaac. But now Jacob has come to the place. It's taken him a while to grow into it. But he's come to the place where he says who I am and what I have from God himself will make a place for me. So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come, when it shall come from my hire before thy face. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. In other words, he says, I will not take anything that isn't of lesser quality, speckled or brown in color. And Laban said, Behold, I would that it might be according to thy word. And he removed that day the goats that were ring-straked and spotted, and all the she-goats that were speckled and spotted, and every one that had some white in it, and all the brown among the sheep, and gave them unto the hand of his sons. And he set three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. 